Good morning, Portico. Great to have you here this morning. So you're pumped, ready to go? All right. Those of you online, welcome to Portico. Good to have you here in the chapel, video cafe. Great to have you connected. If you're new, we're one church, one message, many expressions. So you're at one of our expressions. We have many expressions that are going on right now. And personally, I'm so thrilled that you're in the room with us and that you're watching online. It's so good to have you here. Hey, grab your Bibles. We're going to jump right in. Ushers, if you can help us this morning. If you need to borrow a Bible, raise your hand real, real high. And the best-looking ushers are coming down right now, and they're going to help you out. We have Bibles in the venues for you as well. If you're online, you can download the app, and you can follow along that way. And our chat room hosts will be able to help you with that. Ushers, thank you for doing that. With your Bibles this morning, we're going to get into a couple of passages. I'd also encourage you to take some notes out, because this is a day that we're going to want to take a few notes together, and we're going to dive into a subject. I want you to look up the screens for a moment, if you wouldn't mind. A couple of images that I want you to just see as we roll them past you. These are not unusual. In fact, they're all too frequent, truth be told, in our world. We see them in our newspapers, our periodicals, they come across our computer desk screens, we get notifications on our iPhones, our Android devices, and it just seems like there's this continual bombardment of these graphic images that remind us of this reality that we just cannot seem to shed, and it's suffering. Now, it's represented in all kinds of facets, all kinds of dimensions, but it's there. It's all around us, and it doesn't matter who we are, suffering is part of the fabric of our lives. So I want you to think about it this way. Suffering is indiscriminate. It doesn't matter if you're young or you're old. It doesn't matter if you're rich or you're poor. It doesn't matter if you're educated or you're uneducated, if you live in an advanced nation or what we call a developing nation. Suffering touches every part of our lives. It, is, uh, it doesn't respect whether it's our color or our culture, our ethnicity or our education, whether we're privileged or we're deep into poverty. Here's the way I framed it. Suffering is that violent intruder who interrupts our lives. It immerses us into pain, heartache, and disappointment. And it leaves us in a state of spiritual paralysis, overwhelmed by the sheer magnitude of misery and disappointment that comes in its wake. It's that expression every one of us knows. We've been there. You've been in the same moment that I've been. You've stood by a bedside, a hospital room, near a family member and a friend. You look into their face and you can see etched into the worry lines, the questions, the uncertainty, and the wondering, suffering. It's that same helplessness I feel, and I know many of you have felt, when you walk into a funeral home and the person lying in the casket is far too young, far too undeserving of the experience that's there, and you hold a hand, you give a hug, you look into the eyes of the grieving loved ones, and you have nothing. You have nothing to give. How do you express the misery of evil and the pain of suffering that steals a life away? And it's this cry that is within all of us unspoken or journaled. Why? Why me? Why this way, God? Why, God? And out of sheer frustration, where's God? Suffering and pain. 
Emotions and questions erupt from deep within the recess of our heart and minds. They swirl uncontrollably if we, as we try to make sense of what seems to be random, senseless confrontations with evil, pain, and deep, deep disappointment. And so it's here, and I want you to listen to this. It's in the crucible of suffering that we often encounter the most poignant objections to the Christian faith. It's in pain and disappointment and misery where those who are resistant or hesitant or uncertain raise their biggest objections. And you've heard it before, and I'm going to give it to you again this morning. How can you possibly expect me to believe in a God who allowed this to happen? How can you? And we faced it, or some variation of that, and we weren't quite sure as a follower of Jesus, how to answer. And we weren't quite sure in our own search for faith how to make sense of all that we see and everything that bombards us every day. And so for me today, this topic of suffering is one of those very, very fitting questions for our series. If you're new, our series is called Tough Questions. It's interrogating the Christian faith because the Christian faith doesn't skirt the issue. It brings an answer to the issue. And yet it's this hurdle, and here's what I've come to understand very, very acutely. This is perhaps the most sizable hurdle for people when it comes to faith and belief in the Christian faith. Because they wonder, how can they possibly believe in a God when all of this that just touches and taints our world, unspeakable acts of evil exist? How can you possibly believe that there is a God that I should trust in. Now, I got just a little bit of a disclaimer right at the beginning. You know that I'm the shortest preacher on staff in the church, right? Why the nervous laughter? I don't understand that. Here's what I know. In the limited amount of time that I have to spend with you this morning, I can't possibly touch on the full breadth of this subject. So one of the things that we have been doing, and you hear me talk about it, and so I'm I'm just going to compel you this week. We have growth groups. If you're not in a growth group, that's our small groups, community life groups, get into a growth group. We're covering Timothy Keller's material on this very topic. We're going to land on this this week. If you don't have a group, come Wednesday night. Be a part of our growth group discussion here at the church because we deal with this. We're going to take it a little bit deeper than even what we can get to today. Now, that's step number one. Now, a lot of you, I know that you enjoy research and reading. So if you have a pen handy or if you've got your electronic device, I want to give you a couple of recommendations. So these are resources that I have referred to and that I've accessed, and I I just can't cover the scope of the material. They come from incredibly wise individuals, and so these are available. If you want to know, Amazon.ca, you can get a Kindle, or you can get the the printed versions. Here they are. The Problem of Pain by C.S. Lewis. The Reason for God, we made available, it was for sale here at the church, and that's by Timothy Keller. And then another really, really good resource is called Why Suffering, and it's co-authored by Ravi Zacharias and Vince Vitelli. So some of the material, I've looked at their material and read a lot of their work and incorporated and brought it back into the scriptural understanding. And so that's just additional resource because I I recognize, and I just want to share with you right up front, that if you're looking for a full treatise on the subject, there's no way we have enough time to do that. And uh, unless you guys have like about two years, you good? 
I didn't think so. Not two years worth. So let's jump right in. And I'm going to tackle this in a, in a rather unique way. I'm going to go by way of questions. So if you pull your notes out, and we're going to go to the screens, we're going to share them with you. I'm going to pose three questions that come by way of the skeptics and even those who are concerned as followers of Jesus with this topic. I'm going to try to answer these and then together at the back end of it come to a solution as to what this means for us. The first question that is up on the screen for you and it's there in your notes for the blanks is this one. Why? Why is there suffering? So on a purely intellectual level, here's what we know to be true. We know that suffering comes as a result of when we violate, we ignore, or even when the imposition or the imposing of the violation of a law occurs, that there's going to be a consequence for that. And out of that will often come what we would call suffering of some type. So in the broadest scope possible, let me talk about this. We know that there are natural laws, there are civil laws, there are relational laws, and there are spiritual laws. So all of these bring with them the potential for violation, rejection, and brokenness. And so we know that suffering comes out of this context. So whether you're a perpetrator, a victim, or an innocent bystander, suffering, here's what I know, it's very, very real, and it's very personal. So suffering always speaks to this. It speaks to the presence and the reality of evil. So the mere presence of atrocious evil and suffering in the world is one of the reasons why people who are skeptical of faith say, I can't possibly believe in your God. So let me unpack it a little bit further. Here's sort of the rationale or the premise behind it. They will come back, and you've probably had some conversations of your follower of Jesus, and you get into this level of conversation. Some people will come back, and they'll go, if the God of the Bible, the God that you present from the Bible is portrayed as all-powerful, and he's all-good then if this God exists, why would he create a world which is filled with pointless evil? Why would he do that? And so that's the question that just sort of looms and sometimes asked, sometimes not asked. So the objections, this objection that I just gave you, this premise that is put in there, I just, I want to take us to two ends of the spectrum for a moment. So people who hold this objection, they go, I can't believe in the God because why would God do this in this pointless evil and suffering that exists? So let me move to the very far end of the spectrum. So at one end of the spectrum, if you're taking notes, uh, I just framed it this way. It is what I call the intellectual objection to suffering. There are people who are skeptics and resistant to faith, and it's a purely intellectual conversation that's taking place. There are theoretical questions that they simply want to engage in a wonderful, engaging, lively debate at an academic level. So it's the equivalent of an intellectual jousting match. You do your best to convince me, I'm going to do my best to convince you, and we'll just go our separate ways at the end of the day, and we're not really going to change each other's mind. So that's off at the very far end of the spectrum. And so they say, I I oppose the idea of God on these bases, and so they move on. So at the other end of the objection, the other end of the spectrum, there's another one. And if you want to write this one down, it's what I call the experiential objection. The experiential objection. There are questions that surface in people's hearts and lives because they have personally encountered the pain and the suffering and the loss. So the search for answers is both the need for someone to listen, to empathize, to acknowledge their pain while seeking a better understanding to know the reason behind it. So while they're not prepared to embrace a faith response, they are looking for, can you explain the mystery behind all of this? Now, for those of us who embrace the Christian faith and we follow Christ, 
we readily acknowledge that from our understanding of Scripture, there are at least primarily two sources or two roots that evil exists from in our world. Just, and I'm going to just touch on them and we're going to move off again. But very quickly, if you're writing notes and you want to have this, the first one Jesus referred to, he talked about him being the father of all lies. He talked about Satan, or we call him Lucifer, whatever name you want to put on him, call him the devil. Any name you want to attribute to him in your notes, here's what I got, John chapter 10, verse 10, where Jesus says this about him. He said, the thief comes only to what? Steal, kill, and, yeah, destroy. So we see and we acknowledge and we're quick to respond to the question of why suffering. We go, we know a source. We know a source. Now, there's a lot in that statement that we won't get into today, and there's a lot that we can dive into. But at least we do know something that Jesus said, that he is the father of all lies. He's there, and we have to reckon with that. Here's the second thing I want you to write down. The human heart. The human heart. The Bible says in Jeremiah chapter 17, 9, that the heart is desperately wicked beyond measure. That in other words, the heart is capable, if not in action, it is capable of thinking atrocities that we hope no one ever has the privilege of understanding that we thought about. Are you following me? Does anybody have a heart like mine? I am all alone. Why do, why do we have that? The Bible says that our heart is desperately wicked. In the Bible, or in your notes, Romans chapter 5, verse 12, it says, Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man, and death through sin, and this way death came to all people, because all have sinned. So we know that Adam and Eve, when sin entered into the world, it tainted humanity, and because of sin, the human heart, the wickedness that is there has this capacity towards evil that is absolutely unspeakable. So we all recognize that, and that's one of the things that we turn to. So when the question's asked... And it's the resistance is given, the objection is there, why is there suffering? If you really examine the question at a deeper level, it's, it's really a moral complaint against God. This is posed by those who are uncertain about faith, and it's a different way of framing this. How, God, could you allow this to happen? It's leveling the complaint, the accusation against God, saying, can I trust God in the face of suffering? Can I trust God when we're all surrounded by such unspeakable evil, and can I trust God when I don't know why? Because we want an answer. We don't seem to be able to obtain an answer, and so we have this struggle. So there's a, there's a background. I've got to share a little bit of this here. There's a faulty premise. Maybe that's the best way to describe it. There's a faulty premise that we have here. You see, the difficulty we have when attempting to understand the question of why suffering is this. We tend to believe that we have the right to know why God allows suffering. In other words, even if God has his reasons, you're following me? So even if God has a reason for it, we tend to believe we have the right to know the reason. So you might be supreme, and you might allow this, but we, your created ones, we feel we have the right to know why. So it's really a complaint we level against God because we feel he's being unfair to us. I like what Vince Vitelli talks about. Vince Vitelli in his book, one of the things he writes, he gives a little analogy that helps clear up some of the understanding here. So I give it to you for your consideration. Vince wrote this. He said, when parents decide to move their family from one city to another, 
Quick question, how many of you, your parents ever moved you from one place to another place? Different house, different location? Whoa, look at the room here. Here we go. Listen carefully then. When parents decide to move their family from one city to another, this can genuinely be difficult on a young child. In fact, it may be experienced by the child as the absolute worst suffering they could ever experience. In the moment, the child might be certain that all happiness is left behind him, that his parents hate him, and that for all practical purposes, his life is over. Relating? Yes, we go there. And yet, even such outrage on the part of a child does not mean that the child's parents are wrong to make the move. And it doesn't mean that the parents don't love him. In fact, it's very likely that it was precisely for the good of the the child that the parents were making a decision to move. I remember this happened to me. I was going into grade six, and when my parents announced we were moving, I thought, my life is over. All of my friends are, I'd lived in my community ever since my birth. I knew them before I was born. Okay, maybe not, but I felt like I had. And when mom and dad said, hey, we're moving, it could have been 50 miles, it could have been 5,000 miles as far as I was concerned. My life was ended. So I didn't understand the premise behind my parents' decision. And I'm fairly certain that most of us here today have experienced something very similar to this to our, uh, in our lives. That whether it be a parent, a guardian, an employer, or a leader, we've experienced moments where decisions were made which we were not included in. We felt we had the right to the information, and yet the decision was being made for the greater good. And we struggle whenever the created comes up against the creator because we feel, well, doesn't God owe us the explanation? I like what Alvin Plantinga says in his book. He says, why does God permit all this evil? Christians, and hear me if you're a follower of Jesus, Christians must concede that we don't know. That is, we don't know in any detail on quite a general level, and we may know that God permits evil because he can achieve a world he sees as better by permitting evil than by preventing it. And what God sees as better is, of course, better. So there's this struggle we have to want to know why, and yet God's silence leads us into this moment of just tenuous uncertainty. And yet the Bible is filled with the cries of people, including many of the authors of the Scripture, who are deeply perplexed and baffled by the magnitude of the evil, the unjust distribution of instances of suffering and pain, some personally, some corporately, and they cry out to God. Now here is a fascinating part of their cry. They did not know the reason, and though they asked, it did not undermine their resolve to trust that God's purposes were better than their understanding. In fact, God would speak to the prophet Isaiah. And through Isaiah, if you want to write it down, 55 verses 8 and 9, he would speak through his prophet these words. He goes, My thoughts are nothing like your thoughts, says the Lord, and my ways are far beyond anything you can imagine. For just as high as the heaven are higher than the earth, so my ways are so much higher than your ways, and my thoughts are so much higher than your thoughts. In other words, the mind of man cannot even begin to comprehend the purposes and the plans of God apart from trusting Him. So it could be that even though we want God to speak up, God goes, trust me on this one, and you're going to see why. Here's a second question in your notes I want you to think about today. So the question then comes, if suffering does exist, 
and we know that it does, everybody sees it, then why doesn't God end suffering? So why doesn't he just end it all? So it really comes down to, again, this premise. If God is good, this is the objection now, if God is good, then he can't be all-powerful. And if he's powerful then, he's not good, because if he was both powerful and good, he could end evil. Make sense? So that's the objection that comes into play. So people go, well, all right, we get it. We, we can understand the suffering. So why doesn't God end it? So this objection to the existence of God hinges on this mistaken premise as well. It assumes that a good God would not allow evil to continue. So there's an assumption then that God has to step in that evil could not continue. So we need to stop and wrestle this one very, very carefully. And maybe the best way for me to to walk you into this one is the question of why doesn't God end suffering is perhaps answered by a different question. And here it is. What was God's purpose, his intention, when he created the world? Or what was God creating? What kind of world was God creating when he first created everything? Now, when we begin to ponder this question carefully, and we look at suffering through the lens of what was God's intention when he created the world, here's something we begin to understand. That according to the Bible, what God values above everything else in his creation, and he called it all good, What God values above everything else and what surfaces preeminently through the Scripture is this, relationship. Relationship. That at the beginning, God created a world in which love is capable of meaningful expression and, bring it back the other way, meaningful experience. That when he created it all, it wasn't just to create this world, this universe, and have it, and he could go, wow, look at I pulled off here, but that he actually created man And in relationship with man, there would be community, there would be communion, there would be an opportunity for the meaningful expression of love and the meaningful experience of love. Now follow carefully what happens in this. So for love to be truly meaningful, love must have the freedom of expression and choice. In other words, choosing the relationship also means the possibility of rejecting the relationship. So an expression of love can be received or an expression of love can be rejected. So this in turn means that when rejection takes place, that also brings in the opportunity for pain and suffering, and that's exactly what we find in the Bible. You open up the first chapters, Genesis 1, 2, and 3, and what do you read? Adam and Eve in this wonderful, intimate relationship with God. Talking, walking, coolness of the garden, beautiful imagery of everything that God desired, and it was very good. A whisper in the ear, did God really say? A temptation bursts in a heart, conjured in the mind for a period of time until movement towards disobedience comes into play. Doubt and uncertainty find expression in the freedom to choose. The freedom to choose to obey, the freedom to choose to resist and disobey. Disobedience comes, sin enters And then ultimately, as a result of the expression, comes uh, shame and suffering. So why doesn't God end suffering? Well, to do so, if you think about this, to do so means that God would have to revoke our freedom of choice. He would have to take away the very thing that he empowered us as individuals to enjoy, which sets us apart. 
that ability to find meaningful expression or rejection in our expressions. So God didn't create you to control you. He created you as he created Adam and Eve with the same expression that you have the right to choose, which is why he offers his relationship so freely, but he gives permission to be rejected as equally in your freedom. And so Adam and Eve, what did they do? They chose to disobey. I'm going to put a quote on the screen. This comes from Tim Keller now out of his book, The Reason for God. Look at the words here. If God wanted people to freely choose the good, they would have to have been able to choose, to be free to choose evil. The, the greater good of having true children rather than robots entails the risk of the abuse of free will. That God so loved us, you, that he gives you the power of choice. So people go, well, why doesn't God just end suffering and evil? What you're really saying is, why doesn't God just take away my free choice? And why doesn't he just make us robots? So you go back into the Scripture and you look at Genesis and you've got Cain and Abel. Adam and Eve didn't realize what they unleashed in their decision-making. Their own expression of freedom actually unleashed the heart of wickedness, which Cain, Cain would be the firstborn. He'd be the first to commit murder. And Abel, his brother, would be the first human being to die. And pain and suffering would come to Adam and Eve, not just into Cain's world, because of this. Yet before the horrific crime takes place, God warns Cain about the danger that he's facing. I put it in your notes. We'll put it on the screen. Genesis chapter 4, verse 7. He says to Cain, listen, Cain, if you do what is right, you will, not be, uh, will you not be accepted? But if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you, but you must, what does it say? Rule over it. You must choose what you're going to do with that. God's saying, Cain, you have power to choose what's good. It's right there. Now choose what you want to do. And we look at this and go, well, then why didn't God just intervene? If he could whisper to him and speak to him and warn him, why wouldn't God just go, Cain, stop it and just shut him down? Or why didn't God just like remove him from the face of the earth so that there couldn't have been this such a tragic experience and Abel's life would have been spared and all the questions that come around with this thing? But then there's another problem. At what point do we allow or ask God to step in and intervene? And at what point do we ask God to step back and allow it to take place? For instance, in a situation like I just put on the screen for you, everybody would go, well, absolutely, Doug. When it comes to murder, God should step in. He should have just like, you know, taken Cain out or whatever he did or sent him off to a different part of the world, and he'd be finished that way. But when the choice towards disobedience comes into play, when do we want to invite God in and when do we want him to step back out? So murder, well, that's a real easy one. What about stealing? What about when we're doing our taxes and we falsify the numbers? Do we want God to step in then or not? Most of us, no, 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 the, you know, the CRA, they're good enough for that. What about in our relationships when it comes to adultery? Do we want God to step in then or not? What about when it comes just to the very, and Jesus said this, he said, you know, some of the thoughts that we have, what would it be like if God were to step in and intervene before we thought? We'd be a bunch of mindless people walking around the earth, wouldn't we? So this rationale saying, I want God to step in and intervene, what it really is is we want God to selectively respond towards our injunction, not God's creation. So really we want God to be our robot rather than he make us his robots. And God says, no, I don't do that. I created you. 
so that you could experience the wonder and the majesty and the mystery of life, the freedom to choose and the freedom to love and the freedom to do good, but with it comes the potential for evil. So he raises us up to the highest standard and he says, live at that standard, but recognize that within a broken, fallen world, some will choose to go a different way. Here we see in James chapter 1, 13 and 14, it's in your notes, James writes this, he said, don't let anyone under pressure to give in to evil say, well, then God is trying to trip me up. God is impervious to evil, puts evil in no man's way. The temptation to give in to evil comes from who? Us and only us. And yet the question's still haunting, isn't it? Why? Why doesn't God just end suffering and evil? Now, I've shared with you, you know, a lot of my stories. But in my position over my ministry years, I've had the privilege to travel to many different nations of the world, visit many different peoples and different groups and opportunities to step into the world. And I tell you, some of the places I've been to, they are rife with the most appalling conditions of suffering that I've seen. I've been over into the middle of Russia. I was in, near into Moscow, and then we drove out into the countryside and went deep into the country there, and I visited an orphanage, the most horrific squalor I'd ever seen. None of us would even park our cars in the building that I walked through. And you see the children and the destitute situation and all of the brokenness and the heartache when we drove away, the heartache that I was experiencing, and I'm going, God, why? I've been into Siberia and went out into a hospital took a team of people in, and when we walked into the hospital, I had a registered nurse with me, and we walked into that room, and I just watched her. She looked around the room, and she gasped because the conditions within the room represented 40 years of medicine earlier. So go back 40 years. She said, this looks like a museum. We wouldn't use any of this anymore. And as we walked the hallways visiting with patients, we realized that the medicine and the practices and the procedures that we have in the westernized world could have made such a difference in that context. I've been in South Africa in a rural village visiting with the most impoverished of people who rely upon a few eggs for their sustenance. And a small group of visitors, they take and they sacrifice a few of their chickens to feed us. And we're going, no, don't do that. We're not, we're not dignitaries. We're not worthy of this kind of sacrifice. And yet the radiant smile in the midst of their poverty is haunting to see. I've been up in the Andes Mountains in Venezuela with a church plant and the struggling conditions of trying to get it started. People in economic poverty, hoping that somebody will step into their world and help them build a church. And I've been up into the Northwest Territories with the First Nations people, looking at the conditions of their children and their education and their lifestyle, all of it. But you know the one thing in common? Everywhere I've ever been, not once in any of those places I visit did anybody ever say to me, why doesn't God end suffering? No one ever asked the question. No one ever looked at their circumstances and complained to us and said, you know, why all this evil? Why all of this suffering? Here's what I discovered. I struggled with it. It caused me to wrestle with my faith to wonder where God was in the middle of it. And yet every one of those situations that I left from, whether I drove away, I flew away, or whether I was on a bus traveling with a group of people, every time I left, they inspired me. Their joy in the midst of adversity inspired me. And I was struggling, and I came to discover that I think in our westernized comfort, we have misplaced our understanding of where God presents himself and the joy that comes in the middle of this. Why doesn't God end suffering? Because God says, I've given you freedom to choose. 
And I also recognize something that God also then gives us the power to alleviate suffering if we would rally together and be the salt and be the light and be the joy wherever we go. Powerful opportunities for us when we consider that question. Well, one more question will take you through and we'll end. So I think it's a question that comes out and perhaps this tips now over into the realm of faith. So in the midst of suffering, does God care? Does God care? If God created the world, God gave us freedom of choice, gave us power to experience and express love. When we choose to use our freedom towards damage and harm in the life of another, does does God care? And the overwhelming answer comes back to us in the simple vision of the cross and what we just did at these tables this morning. So I read from Tim Keller for a moment because I like how Timothy Keller expresses it. He said, if we were to ask the question again, why does God allow evil and suffering to continue, and we look at the cross of Jesus, we still do not know what the answer is. However, we do know what the answer is not. It cannot be that God is indifferent or detached from our condition because he takes our misery and suffering so seriously that he was willing to take it on himself. So let me unpack this. Christianity, if you're on a journey of faith and you're asking questions, man, I'm glad you're here. Glad you're watching, glad you're listening. So if you're trying to understand the rationale, I want you to hear something about the Christian faith. Christianity is the only religion with a God who suffers. The Bible reminds us that God himself stepped into our reality and experienced injustice, violence, and rejection. That God is not indifferent. God is not detached. God is not removed. God does not try to escape, nor does he try to ignore. Rather, he enters into the human condition that he might fully experience and satisfy that we might find relief for the very things that bring us pain. Only the Christian faith has a God who, through his compassion, takes our misery and our suffering so seriously that he will wrap himself in flesh, clothe himself in humanity, walk among us, and willingly sacrifice his life that we might find a future relief from present challenge. So think about this. At the cross... It's at the cross. When you look at these emblems, the juice and the bread that you held, the symbols that we had in our hands, this at the cross we see the absolute uniqueness of the Christian response to suffering. You see, in atheism, there is no basis for outrage to suffering and evil. There is no God to accuse. So what do you do with it if you choose to be an atheist? How do you reconcile it? In Islam, the idea of God's suffering is nonsense because it is thought to make God weak. And there's no way that God would be weak. In Buddhism, to reach divinity is precisely to move beyond the possibility of suffering. Only in Christ do we have a God who is willing and loving enough to suffer with us. That's what sets this whole thing apart. That when it comes to Christianity, it's not the barrier. Suffering's not the barrier. Suffering was the opportunity for God to step into our world and go, I know you blew it. And I know you can't even handle life the way you're living it, so I will take care of it for you. Interesting. Hayden Carlo, 25 years old, was going to discover firsthand what it was like to experience someone who would show compassion in the middle of suffering. 
Hayden tells a story. He was driving home in his car, and a police officer noticed the expired tags on his license plate. That's never happened to us, has it? And he said he noticed the expired tags, pulled them over. The officer walked up to the window and asked for his license and his registration. Hayden offered them through the window, and he knew immediately what it was because the police officer suspected that the registration had been expired, and he didn't have, so it was a fine. There was going to be a fine. So as the officer took the license and registration and he begins to write out the ticket, Hayden thought he would offer an excuse. He said, officer, there's a reason that I haven't renewed my registration. And the officer just listened to him. He said, the reason I didn't renew my registration is I'm out of work. He said, I don't have the money. He said, I either have to buy groceries for my children or I had to pay for the registration for my car. And I chose to buy groceries for my children. And the officer just finished writing the ticket. Didn't acknowledge, didn't respond, just wrote the ticket. Tore the ticket off, folded the ticket in half, handed it back through the window to Hayden, said, have a nice day. Walked away, got in his car, and drove away. Hayden was overwhelmed in the moment, already in debt, struggling to figure out what to do financially. Peels opened the ticket to find out how much more debt he was going to have to struggle with, and there folded inside of the ticket was a crisp $100 bill. The officer had to fulfill the requirement of the law, but he knew how to bring compassion into the moment. See, friends, God knows there's a penalty that we have to pay, but he also knows how to pay the price so that compassion can be a part of what we experience. Does God care? Absolutely God cares about what we go through. When you think about it, Isaiah screams out at us. He says, because of our sins, he was wounded. He was beaten because of the evil that we did. We are healed by the punishment that he suffered, and by the blows he received, we are made whole. Salvation wasn't merely a rescue plan. It was a complete restoration plan. It's exactly why Jesus came, that the kingdom of heaven and the promise of the resurrection, what's it all about? Why do we preach it? Why do we share it? Because it addresses the very issues that people struggle with when they go, why suffering and why evil? You see, the kingdom of heaven and the promise of Christ is this. It's the promise of hope restored. It's the promise of relationship restored. It's the promise of joy restored. It's the promise of pain and suffering and evil being abolished forever and wiped from humanity. That's why Revelation 21, up on the screen and in your notes, it says this, And he, Jesus, will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death, no more mourning, no more crying, no more pain. For the order of the old things is completely passed. Well, friends, that's what we hold on to right there, is we recognize that the future glory that is coming is infinitely better than the temporary experience that we endure. That suffering and pain only prevails in this temporary moment of life. But ultimately, Christ wins and has won. 2 Corinthians 4.17 says, For our light and our momentary troubles. How many of you have those? Let's be honest. How many of you have light troubles and how many of you have heavy troubles? We do. For our light and our heavy troubles. Let's call them that way. They are momentary and they're achieving for us an eternal glory that will far outweigh anything we can ever imagine because of Christ. Now here's what happens. Assume. As we're tainted and touched by suffering, we start to think, well, number one, I'm being punished. What did I do? Why is God punishing me? Why is this happening to me? And yet the Bible reminds us over and over and over, when you look at the cross and you look at what we just celebrated, the cross is not saying you're being punished. The cross is saying Jesus paid your punishment. It's cared for. It's all covered. Then the second thought that hits us when we go through suffering and we face evil and we see it in the world, well, maybe God doesn't care. 
But then again, I looked back at these emblems and I held them in my hands the same way you did. And as I bit down into that cracker and I felt that bread dissolve between my teeth and I thought, him, he did this for me. He did this for me because he cares for me. And as I drank the cup, I was reminded again that who else would have been nailed to a cross and willingly shed his blood? Friends, don't miss this. He would have done it for you if you were the only one to rescue He would have done it for you. And yet he says he did it for humanity. And that's the beautiful, joyful news of the good news is that Christ has already paid the price. He did it for all of us. And it still comes down to choice though, doesn't it? We either choose it and we receive it and we experience love in a way we've never known it before and we can now express love in a way we've never known before or we continue to resist it and we put up our barriers and we raise more hurdles for it. Hebrews 4.15, it says, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but we have one who has been tempted in every way just as we are, and yet he did not sin. This is our God. So on the night before his death, Jesus wrestled with what he knew the next day would bring. said he had a meal with his friends in the upper room. They sang a hymn, and then he went out to the garden grove to pray. In that moment of prayer, there was a great deal expressed that we often don't see. Jesus, Matthew says, Jesus used words like these. He said, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Think about that. This is the creator, the living word. My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Why is that important, you say, Doug? Because I want you to understand Jesus knew what he was facing. He was facing the cross. He was calling out to his father, Father, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. But nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. And everything in that moment and that prayer and those few words begins to stir inside of my own spirit. This means for me, and I want to share it with you, this means that when Jesus was in the garden and he was praying, if you've ever experienced deep bouts of depression, you've thought about suicide, and you're concerned about dying, Jesus is right there with you. He understands it. If you know what it is to face abandonment and rejection and pain because of relational breakdown, Jesus is right there with you. When you go through pain and torture and suffering, and some of you have, Jesus understands he was right there with you. And in the moments of relational separation and despair, when everyone else has turned their back, Jesus had one, and he raised his eyes and he said, My Father, into your hands do I commit my spirit. There is no depth of agony. There is no degree of helplessness that we can experience in this life that Jesus does not understand. And so when people say, Why suffering? Why doesn't God stop suffering? And does he care about my suffering? I go, there's a lot of questions I can't answer well. But this one I can't answer. He will not leave me alone even when I go through my times of suffering. And he's given me a promise that in relationship with him, that though I go through a season of suffering, it will make me stronger. And I have a future that is greater than anything I know right now. Amen? Let's pray together. Father. Father, this morning we just lift our voices to you and we pray because we know that there's so much contained in this that our human finite minds cannot wrap themselves around. But I pray, Lord, I pray in this room, this is not just merely a a biblical thesis on suffering and pain and evil. It's not just a quick band-aid solution for objections and hurdles and skeptics who are trying to understand the Christian faith. This is life and hope, and healing, and wholeness, and power. 
This is opportunity for the one who sits listening to my voice this morning, ravaged by sickness and disease and pain, to be able to stand to their feet and go, my God cares for me in the middle of all of this. It's the opportunity for the one that knows that right now they don't have the money to pay their rent at the end of the month. And yet they sit in this room and they go, God sees, he is concerned, he cares. He'll rescue me. This is the prayer for a parent whose children have turned their backs on them and have walked away and they feel like prodigal parents waiting and longing to know that, God, your kids are their kids and you're bringing them home as they pray and they wait for them. And this is the prayer for those who say goodbye to loved ones and have no words to speak, no thoughts to give, but simply a whispered prayer. I thank you, God, that you care for us. As your eyes are closed this morning, I wonder how many would be courageous enough. You're in the room, and you're going through something right now, and you go, Doug, this is my moment of suffering. might be a marital breakdown. It could be a health issue. It could be a finance issue. It could be news that you received by way of email this week. Any number of different situations that we could possibly be facing rejection from a college and a university that you thought your future career was built around. But if you're in the room and you're watching online and if you're in the other venues this morning, would you respond while we're praying? I want to pray for you. Would you stand up wherever you are in this room? And if you're going through a time of suffering right now, I just want you to quickly stand to your feet. I'm not going to ask you what it is. I just want to pray for you. So by standing to your feet, you're just saying, Father, I want you to see me. If you're watching online, go ahead, stand up. That's all right. Nobody else is there or your family's with you. That's good. Maybe a few friends. If you're in the other venues, stand up to your feet right now. This is your moment, friends. This is a moment for the Spirit to remind you God cares about where you are and what you're going through. Now, for the rest of us, we are salt and we are light. We are conduits of His grace. So would you put a hand on a shoulder? Would you be a brother and a sister to these that are standing? So just quickly, all across the room, the other rooms, put your hand on his shoulder. Love and courage. You don't have to ask what they're there for. You just got to put your hand there. Let them know that they are, somebody is present with them in their moment of suffering. And join me right now as we pray. Father, in the name of Jesus, every one of the circumstances that is represented by individuals standing in this room was already known by you before they stood to their feet. So I pray the release of the Spirit into this room, to those watching online, into our venues, those listening to my voice, that you, by your power and by your grace, would flood into their circumstance and remind them, I have seen, I have heard, I am concerned, and I have come down to rescue you, that your grace, your joy, will be more than what they'll need to make it through what they are enduring, and that in the middle of this, they are not alone, God. You are with them in their storm. And Father, some, you can give sight to the blind, you can heal the lame, you can restore in the moment's whisper. Others, you choose to weave into the tapestry of their life a greater purpose. So whatever your sovereign will is, we respect. But we do pray as you invited us to pray. Father, may your will be done. And may healing come in the name of Jesus. May provision be there, I ask it in Christ's name. Amen. Would you?